Hey there, you're listening to Curious City, where we answer your questions about Chicago, the region, and its people. This time, two questions about Chicago law enforcement, including one about police at local universities. Back when I was in high school, we called them rent-a-cops. These days, you probably shouldn't make that joke. Stay tuned. WBEZ's Curious City podcast is supported by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, hosting 150 public events each year that go behind the headlines. Hear directly from world leaders, policymakers, and international experts, and meet other curious Chicagoans. Learn more about upcoming events and membership at thechicagocouncil.org. Who's the what is going to be when where, where do I why is it how many what is the what <laughs> welcome to curious city I'm Ellen Mayer here's an interesting fact one of the largest private police forces not just in the country but in the world is right in Chicago's south side and it happens to operate in the Bronzeville neighborhood that's where Jeff Johnson lives and he asked us this question I see the University of Chicago police cars all over not just on the university grounds, and I was wondering how much authority they have beyond their campus. Do they have arresting powers? Do they have police powers beyond their campus? Jeff seems like a law-abiding guy, but he is concerned about having all these University of Chicago police cars around because, you know, we all slip up now and then. Do I have to slow down when they're near me? (laughs) I mean, can they stop me from running a stop sign? So the answer to, are they a real police officer? Do they have law enforcement authority? Yes. This is Cora Beam, and she knows a thing or two about police powers. She's a training manager for the Illinois Law Enforcement Training and Standards Board. Beam says every Illinois police officer gets the same basic training and certification, even if they're privately employed. They can write you a ticket. They can arrest you. They can counsel and release you. So yes, they're real cops. But Beam is talking about police powers on campus, and usually that's where university police jurisdiction ends. So why are University of Chicago police patrolling Jeff Johnson's neighborhood, 15 blocks away from campus? It turns out UCPD's jurisdiction covers several lakefront neighborhoods, from 37th Street down to 65th Street. In total, officers patrol 6.5 square miles. No other private police force in the city covers such a large area. So what's so special about UCPD? I get an answer from Craig Futterman. He's a clinical professor of law at the University of Chicago. There's a city ordinance in Chicago that grants the police superintendent the power to appoint special police officers for the city of Chicago. This designation allows UCPD to exercise full police powers like arrests and traffic stops, both on campus and off campus within that huge jurisdiction. And here's another thing. Futterman says over time, Chicago's police superintendent has granted UCPD more independence. In years past, university police needed administrative assistance to complete arrests. The arrest, though, would be formalized and would be processed at a local Chicago police department district station, usually whatever the district of the arrest was because UCPD operated in more than one Chicago police district. But that changed by 2013. Now UCPD reports directly to the state and can process arrests independently. The university has more than 100 full-time officers, and that comes with a hefty price tag. So why does it even want such a huge jurisdiction? 
UCPD didn't speak with us for this story, but they did email us a written statement. So I ask our question asker, Jeff, to read it for us. The extended patrol area enhances safety and security through the mid-south side, which is home to a large number of University of Chicago faculty members, students, and staff. But of course that jurisdiction doesn't just include university students and employees. UCPD serves as the primary police force for 65,000 Chicagoans, and most are not affiliated with the university. That includes Jeff Johnson, who says this doesn't quite feel right. I worry about a, a, a private police force. I, I, it just sounds like maybe we're handing too much power to them. And Jeff's not the only one with questions. Recently, Hyde Park's experimental station held a community forum where residents could air concerns about UCPD jurisdiction and accountability. Organizers invited Rudy Nimux. He was chief of UCPD from 1989 to 2009. Nimux says when it comes to the extended jurisdiction, there was community support and also hearings about it. We were asked to come in, and I told each one of the uh, each one of the sessions. I said we'll stay here as long as you want us, and that's the way it's been ever since. The forum goes on with more comments. Most of them relate to racial profiling. Here's one from Jamel Triggs. They're supposed to be protecting and serving us, correct? That's supposed to be the goal. And it's supposed to be innocent to proven guilty, not the other way around. Because when you racially profile somebody, you're saying that that person is guilty until you see otherwise. And that's wrong. Triggs is black. And he says UCPD officers have stopped him six times since he returned from the Marine Corps in May. I don't want these kids walking around being scared of the police and being scared of the gangbangers down the street. As I was. And it hurts. The university says its police do not use tactics that amount to racial profiling. But without hard data, students and community members have to simply take UCPD at its word. They have asked the department to release records about the race of people they stop and search, like the Chicago police do. So far, the school has refused. UCPD is a private force, and it's not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. But... A lot of people at the forum are wondering why that is. So the moderator follows up with former UCPD chief Rudy Nimix. Doesn't it seem like a legitimate question? I mean, just to... Yeah, it's a legitimate question. No question about it. No question about it because police departments should respond to the uh, kind of law enforcement that the community they serve requires. I'm reporter Chris Bentley, and our next Curious City question about law enforcement deals with what happens after the police have left the scene of a crime. It comes from a 36-year-old architect on Chicago's far north side. Oh, my name is Peter Normand, and uh, I live up in Rogers Park, and I'm just curious to know uh, who it is that cleans up spilt blood from some of the city's violent problems on our sidewalks and parks. Peter says he first wondered this after a shooting back in April on the 1600 block of West Morris Avenue. And, of course, you know, unfortunately there was someone's blood on the sidewalk. But then the next day, walking to work, it had not been cleaned up. And it was kind of interesting because it's where a lot of kids have to walk to go to school. In fact, the school is one block away. Peter's not the only one who remembers a bloody sidewalk that day. 
Hadima, who would only give her first name, owns SK Food Mart, a nearby convenience store. Next morning when we came here, there was blood on the spot. She says she had a janitor in the building clean it up. I don't know what happened at that night. So when I came in the morning, I didn't want to see blood in front of my store, so I had to wash it out. This shooting and the blood left on the sidewalk are awful. But in Chicago, are residents like Peter and Hedima left on their own when it comes to cleaning up? Well, Chicago police and fire department spokesmen said this incident is not typical. Usually the city cleans blood on public sidewalks and streets. But still, neither department tracks crime scene cleanups specifically, so they couldn't confirm if a crew was dispatched to that scene at all. To clarify all this, and answer Peter Norman's question, we parsed the city's process for cleaning up after homicides and other traumatic events and looked to see if there are any legal problems or any risk to public health or public psychology. But first, the basics, which were explained to me by Chicago and state agencies. Once officers finish gathering evidence, department procedure directs them to call the fire department for a washdown. Within minutes, a fire engine crew arrives and blasts any blood with a fire hose, washing it down the drain with nothing but plain Chicago water. That's all. At least if the crime scene is on a Chicago sidewalk. But what if it's in a park? Well, sometimes the park district handles this more like private property owners do. They call contractors, like Brian Reifsteck. He co-runs Aftermath Services, LLC, a national biohazard removal company based in west suburban Aurora. For comparison, Reifsteck says his company uses detergents, absorbents, more than plain Chicago water. And a lot of people associate our, our work with, you know, we're going to come in and we're going to do a little wiping on the wall and everything's going to be... A lot of times we're removing carpet, we're removing floors, walls, ceilings. In many cases, there's quite a bit of demolition that needs to be done as well. So, why the lower standard for public work? For this, I talked to Beverly Albaracine with the Illinois Environmental Protection Agency. She says there's a legal issue. Usually, blood is subject to environmental regulations, but blood from shootings is not. Which means that it's not regulated as medical waste. It's treated as either municipal waste or sometimes a special waste. And this legal distinction actually exists for a medical reason. The odds of a disease lasting, for one thing, outside of a human body and remaining virulent or or able to cause disease is very, very minute. Okay, but what about any psychological impact? Remember, our question asker found blood left on a sidewalk just down the street from a grade school. I run this by Dr. Carl Bell, a medical expert on youth violence at Jackson Park Hospital and Medical Center. He says residents should note that the city is motivated to clean violent crime scenes. Having lived in Chicago my entire life, it's very clear to me that Chicago is characterized by uh, cosmetics. People are very interested in how we appear. And having blood on the streets or bullet casings on the streets is not good. And so they've done a very good job of cleaning up after homicides. But let's say the city leaves blood out for a while. Is there a potential for trauma? Dr. Bell says yes, but think of all the makeshift memorials and tributes community members leave out. There are always traumatic reminders of an incident like that, like the memorials. But people are complex. People are resilient. In other words, memories of violence persist, whether the city cleans up promptly and properly or not.
reporting for our Curious City stories today comes from Ellen Mayer and me, Chris Bentley. A note, you can find more about these stories and subscribe to our podcast at wbez.org slash Curious City. Curious City is produced by Jennifer Brandel, WBEZ, and AIR, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Doris and Howard Conant Fund for Journalism. you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.